Things and power. We moderns have accustomed ourselves to regard things as mere dead objects with which we deal exactly as we please. Only a poet could vindicate things. Gladly do I hearken to the things singing. Touch them, how stiff and mute they are. You kill all my things. Here, once again, a philosopher is sensitive to the potency of things. Which possess a life of their own, despite that loss of power that has befallen them since the days of the Greeks. For the prevailing emphasis on the spiritual and internal, as contrasted with the merely institutional, spiritualismus, the cult of personality and finally modern machinery have transformed the living, self activated things into merely dead material. To the primitive mind, on the contrary, the thing is the bearer of a power. It can affect something. It has its own life, which reveals itself, and once again, wholly practically. During an important expedition, for example, an African Negro steps on a stone and cries out, Ha! Are you there? and takes it with him to bring him luck. The stone, as it were, gives a hint that it is powerful. Again, An Ud tribesman in West Africa enters the bush and finds a lump of iron there. Returning home, he falls ill, and the priests explain that a tro, a divine being, is manifesting its potency in the iron, which in future should be worshipped. Thus, everything may be a power bearer, and even if itself provides no evidence of its influence, it suffices if someone tells it that it is powerful. What Rilke, in one of his stories of God, makes the children do, they agree among themselves that the thimble shall be God. Anything may be God. You only have to tell it to be. This is the frame of mind behind so called fetishism. Everything, then, to repeat, can be a power bearer. Objects existing in intimate relations to soul stuff possess indisputable potency. It is for this reason that the Maori, as has already been remarked, regard the latrine as replete with mana. The sick bite its beams in order to be cured. The systematic reckoning with the power subsisting in things we call fetishism, a term coined in the scientific sense by de Brasse in 1760, and originally used by the Portuguese with reference to Negro beliefs and customs. But it was applied only to potent things made by man himself, and therefore not to natural objects. Gradually, however, it attained a more comprehensive meaning, sometimes so extensive that even the worship of nature could be included, so that the concept then became formless. But if it is really desired to indicate the structure of a spiritual viewpoint by the term usually employed, Then it would be advisable to apply it only to those objects that we call things, but with no distinction between natural and artificial, because primitive man venerates what he himself has made, provided this is effective, just as much as what nature gives him when this manifests power. In this latter respect, any peculiarity that differentiates the object from environing nature is essentially significant. The striking shape of a crooked branch, 
of a round stone, etc., becomes the pointer to the existence of power. It is necessary further that the object be not too large, so that one may take it away, or as it were, pocket it. Although mountains and trees are regarded as sacred, like the fetish, because of their potency, still they should not be called fetishes. It is just this feeling of being able to carry the sacred power with one that is characteristic of fetishism. Let us fetch the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh unto us, that, when it cometh unto us, it may save us out of the hand of our enemies, said the Israelites when the Philistines beset them. A good example of a fetish is the Australian Churinga, a peculiar, peculiarly shaped piece of wood on which an outline sketch of a totem emblem is scratched. The word itself means the private secret, and the object must be kept secret from the women and children. It is a bearer of a power connected on the one hand with the individual, and on the other with his totem. Here again subsists the power superior to, yet nevertheless overflowing into, humanity. The Turinga are most carefully concealed in a kind of place of refuge. Earlier research assumed that the potency of a fetish is a spirit permanently residing within it, but today the contrasted hypothesis is in favor. At the same time, it is probable that the way in which this power is represented is of secondary significance for the constitution of fetishism as such. Thus, the power of the Ark of the Covenant sprang from Javeh, a god, that of the Chiringa from a totem, and the potent influence of the fetish, naturally, is very often simply presupposed, quite apart from any kind of attitude to spirits or gods being implied, purely dynamically, therefore. Actually, fetishism is always dynamic, and regarded as an ideal type. It was so originally also because its essence lies in the idea that power resides within a thing and emanates from it. Whence the power arises is, however, a question in itself. In view of these considerations, we can understand the transition from fetish to idol. In many parts of the world, piles of stones were erected, each traveler adding his stone to those already thrown there. Such stone heaps being found in South Africa, just as in ancient Israel. In later times, these cairns were looked upon as monuments or burial mounds. Originally, however, it was the potency of the accumulated stones that men thus assured for themselves. In Greece, these stone heaps were called herme, and were the or origin of a divinity, he of the stone heaps, Hermes. But before Hermes received his marvelous human form from the hands of Praxiteles, he had to stand by the wayside as the phallic stone or herm for many years. The august form of Pallas, again, was evolved from the fetish of the double thunder shield or Palladian. Of her, just as of Demeter, there were effigies which were half stone fetish and half woman exactly as Aphrodite was originally a cone. 
The power of things, in fact, faded only very gradually before that of gods and even of animals. In ancient Egypt, fetishes persisted together with animal and human forms of power. And in Greece, people loved the zoana, the rough wooden blocks, more than Phidias's marvelous statues. His Attic palace and Rarian Ceres, which stand unsculptured in the shape of a rude and unformed log, were dearer to him than the Lemnian Athena or the Cnidian Demeter. Forms contrasted with a human actually indicate a diviner remoteness, and yet at the same time a more intimate contact than does anthropomorphic power. And this extremely primitive association between transcendence and immanence is essentially characteristic of fetishism. The time-honored, time-blackened blocks of wood, which pious faith takes to have descended from heaven, were precious to the women's people's hearts. They remain so today in Catholic religions. For it is not before great art creations nor forms that arouse his sympathy that man prays most spontaneously and fervently and to which he makes pilgrimages, but the black Madonnas. It is these work that work miracles. And before the fetish, numinous awe unites with the intimacy and the consciousness of dominance aroused by things. The intensity of the attractive power enjoyed even today by fetishism is plainly evident from the use of so-called mascots in modern sports. Dolls and animal figures still display themselves as potent. And this not as incarnations of gods in whom trust is no longer placed, but purely and simply as things. At the missionary exhibition in Nice in 1925, for example, Many fetishes were to be seen, and countless visitors wished to buy these at high prices. As this was naturally declined, the directors of the exhibition found themselves compelled to have these objects carefully guarded because attempts were made to steal them. The experience of the potency of things or persons may occur at any time. It is by no means confined to specific seasons and occasions. Powerfulness always reveals itself in some wholly unexpected manner, and life is therefore a dangerous affair, full of critical moments. If then one examines them more closely, even the most ordinary events, the customary associations with one's neighbors, or similarly one's long familiar tasks, prove to be replete with mystic interconnections. We may say indeed, the explanation of any fact, however natural it may appear, is ultimately always mystic. But we should probably express ourselves in more primitive fashion if we completely ignored our own scheme of explanation in terms of single causes, and in place of this interpreted life as a broad current of mighty powers, whose existence we do not specifically observe, but which occasionally makes itself conspicuous by either the damming or the flooding of its waters. If, for instance, one of the Taradja tribes in Celebes is preparing for an expedition and an earthen pot is broken, then they remain at home, saying that it is Misa. This may be translated as a sign, 
not only in any rationalistic sense, as indicating some future misfortune, but also that the current of life has been interrupted. If then one thing has been broken, why not more? Similarly, when an Iwi tribesman finds refuge from his enemies on a white ant hill, he ascribes his escape to the power residing there. Thus, the place, the action, the person in which the power reveals itself receive a specific character. Bearers of mana, for example, are sharply distinguished from the rest of the world. They are self-sufficient. By the Greeks, similarly, a body struck by lightning was regarded as holy because powerfulness was manifested in it. Objects, persons, times, places, or actions charged with power are called taboo, a word from the same cultural domain as mana. It indicates what is expressly named exceptional, while the verb tapui means to make holy. Tabu is thus a sort of warning, danger, high voltage. Power has been stored up and we must be on our guard. The tabu is the expressly authenticated condition of being replete with power, and man's reaction to it should rest on a clear recognition of this potent fullness, should maintain the proper distance and secure protection. The taboo is observed in different ways and with regard to highly contrasted objects. To the Greek, the king and the foreigner, or stranger, appeared as objects of eidos, of awe, to be duly respected by keeping one's distance. Almost everywhere, the king is looked upon as powerful so that he should be approached only with the greatest caution, while the foreigner, bearer of a power unknown and therefore to be doubly feared, stands on an equal footing with an enemy. Hostess is both a stranger or foreigner and enemy. One may either kill the alien, if one is in a position to do so, or bid him welcome, but in no case are his coming and going to be regarded with indifference. Greeting is therefore a religious act, intended to intercept the first onset of the power, and into which the name of God is introduced or to which an appeasing influence is attached. Hospitality, therefore, as well as war, is a religious act, intended either to repel the alien power or to neutralize it. Sex life is also full of potency, woman being distinguished from man by mysterious peculiarities. Thus, the veil served as a defense, even before it became a symbol of bashfulness. Everything concerned with the sexual is exceptional. When one is sexually impure, one must be careful and not undertake any important matter such as war. Nor should one approach a menstruating woman who is often excluded from a cult for this very reason. Her potent influence would antagonize the power to be acquired by means of the cult. Hence the formula, hostus vinctus mulier virgo existo. Let every stranger, bound person, woman, or virgin stand aside, associated with certain Roman sacrifices. Similarly, as regards Cato's warning in connection with the vow for the cattle, a woman may not take part in this offering, nor see how it is performed. 
some one day again or series of days is regarded as being more potent than others. Sabbath, Sunday, Christmas Day, and their primitive and heathen equivalents are sacred. No work is done, or at least no important affair is undertaken. Thus the Battle of Thermopylae was lost because the holy days imposed on the Spartans a cessation of hostilities, and for the same reason they arrived at Marathon too late. On very sacred days, even the slightest labor was forbidden, for critical times must never be allowed to pass unnoticed, but must be met by some relevant exceptional behavior on man's own part, such as fasting. Taboo, then, is the avoidance of deed and of word, springing from awe in the presence of power. Words concerning critical affairs like hunting, war, sex, intercourse, should not be uttered, but rather be replaced by a specially elaborated taboo language, remnants of which we still retain in our sportsmen's slang and thieves' jargon. Even a peculiar woman's terminology occurs side by side with the men's. But the mere avoidance as such of potency cannot suffice. Among the Kayan of central Borneo, for example, neither man nor woman may touch slaughtered fowl during the woman's pregnancy, nor may the man pound the soil. To our minds, the connection and the purpose here are obscure. The taboo, however, is anything but a measure of utility. Power has revealed itself either as cessation or as superfluity. It is therefore not only a question of avoiding it, but also of thinking of some defense against it. Sometimes the mode of protection is inintelligible to us, as with a veil or some sort of ritual or discipline such as fasting. Often, however, we cannot fathom it at all. Associations then appear which we moderns quite fail to understand, and feelings to which we are wholly insusceptible. But even when we do succeed, what we regard as a causative connection does not emerge, just as little as there arises an emotional reaction in the sense of our reverence or devotion. Though both these may be incorporated in the primitive attitude, the taboo further may be decreed. Some power-bearer, a king or priest, can endow an object with his own power and proclaim a season of potency. In Polynesia, the king's messenger thus announces the taboo. Taboo. No one may leave his house. Taboo. No dog may bark. Taboo. No cock may crow. Taboo. No pig may grunt. Sleep. Sleep till the taboo is past. In the human soul, then, power awakens a profound feeling of awe, which manifests itself both as fear and as being attracted. There is no religion whatever without terror, but equally none without love, or that nuance of being attracted, which corresponds to the prevailing ethical level. For the simplest form of religious feeling, merit has suggested the fine word awe, and auto the term shu, which is something less comprehensive. The Greek eidos, too, is most pertinent. 
The expression adopted must be a very general one, since it is a question of establishing an attitude which includes the whole personality at all its levels, and in countless nuances. Physical shuddering, ghostly horror, fear, sudden terror, reverence, humility, adoration, profound apprehension, enthusiasm, all these lie in noose within the awe experienced in the presence of power. And because these attitudes show two main tendencies, one away from power and the other towards it, we speak of the ambivalent nature of awe. Of course, taboo means a prohibition, and power reveals itself first of all uh, always as something to be avoided. Everywhere, too, the prohibition announces itself earlier than the command, but Freud has very ably shown how the former always implies the latter. Man is fully conscious only of the prohibition, while the command usually remains unrecognized. What we hate, we love, and what we truly love, we could at the same time hate. For each man kills the thing he loves, said Oscar Wilde. And this is far more than a brilliant phrase. In the presence of the something different which we recognize as wholly other, our conduct is always ambivalent. Love may be described as an attempt to force oneself into the place of the other, hate as the fear of love. But whether the sacred releases feelings of hate and fear or those of love and reference, it always confronts man with some absolute task, the taboo has, therefore, and not without justification, been described as the oldest form of the categorical imperative. Of course, we must not think of Kant's argument in this connection. Nevertheless, taboo and categorical imperative have in common the character of complete irrationality as well, to, as, well as absoluteness. Thou shalt. What one should do is a secondary issue. Why one should do it is not a question at all. Confronted with power, which he experiences as being of completely contrasted nature, man apprehends its absolute demand. An eruption occurs in his life, and he is drawn in two directions. He is seized with dread, and yet he loves his dread. Once the belief in taboo has completely become mere observance, an empty shell, then man breaks his fetters. In the Euripidean Heracles, neither nature nor pure humanity can be defiled by the taboo of death. Heracles need only take off the veil and show his head to the light. Eternal is the element. Mortal, thou canst not pollute the heavens. No haunting curse can pass from friend to friend. This is essentially the modern feeling, which opposes power in nature and personality. That fetishism and naturism are separated by no unabridgable chasm should be clear from the example of stone worship. With stones of any particular size and shape, the firm subjective assurance of the presence of power has ever been associated. When, for instance, Jacob his head resting on a stone, lay down to sleep, and had his remarkable dream. He expressed himself as thus, and purely empirically, How dreadful is this place! 
This is none other but the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. And he took the stone and set it up for a pillar, anointing it with oil. Even if this narrative is etiological and intended to account for the worship of a remarkable stone, still it remains typical of the way in which stones can become most intimately incorporated in man's experience. The Hellenic peoples who immigrated to Greece from the north, again, were familiar with a stone they called Aegeus, he of the ways. And when they had permanently settled in Greece, the Aegeus stone was set up in the marketplace, decorated and garlanded, as it had protected the great migration, and so would guard the colony. The stone had the phallic form and was probably, like many other stones, set upright, originally regarded as a manifestation of fertility power. Later in Greece, there arose from the stone the phallic harm and eventually the god's image. In Israel, on the other hand, this development was intersected by a version from the anthropomorphic. While the latter examples are important with respect to the power of growth, still to be considered, thunderbolts were rev revelations of celestial power. The Celex of Jupiter Ferratrius, or Jupiter Lapis, was preserved on the capital and brought into use for ceremonial oaths. It was supposed to smite perjurers like a thunderbolt. The Romans all also erected potent stones as boundary posts and dedicated a cult to them. The power residing within them was protective, termini. But other powers too could be concealed in the stone. For the ancient Romans, a stone, lapis menalis, brought down rain, a rain charm, aquilitium, aquilitium, whose echo still resounded in the chanson de geste, Yvan, in which, as soon as the hero pours water on a stone in the forest of Brocheliand, it begins to thunder loudly and rain very heavily. Metals, too, are bearers of power, and the rarer these are, the more potent. Gold, which shares its color with the sun, also possesses something of the sun's vivifying strength. The Greeks prepared death masks of gold, while the Egyptians, for whom the metal stood in direct relationship to life, made in their later eras golden portraits of mummies. With gold again, the kings divided life among their favorites. The golden apples of the Hesperides, from, who, from whose guardianship the fruit later passed into the power of Iduna in Iceland, were for the Greeks the symbol of life. But mountains are of far greater interest. Everywhere in the world, there are sacred mountains. Whether power is ascribed simply to them or is imagined as a demon or god. Remote and unapproachable mountains, often volcanic and repellent, and in any case majestic, stand apart from the normal and incorporate, therefore, the power of the Holy Other. Japan has its sacred Fujiyama, Greece, its Olympus, or rather several of them, and every region has its holy peak. Naturally, the mountain is already there in its might before the gods make their entry into Valhalla. But once there, they can hardly reside elsewhere. 
The oldest heaven is the mountaintop. Similarly, in the Old Testament, deity dwells on the mount. The north and south, thou madest them. Tabor, the mount of the gods in the north, and Hermon, the mount of gods in the south, acclaim thee. The sacred world above. When man seeks the frontiers of his own being, he finds these within himself, in his environment, and in the world above. Where heaven is, there is God, said an eerie tribesman. And it is easy to understand that heaven and its phenomena have not only always taken a prominent place in the poetry and thought of all peoples, but have also been the connecting links with the concepts of the holy other. For these, the forms assumed by the celestial god or gods are unnecessary. Heaven, simply as such, preceded its characters or inhabitants. In Mexico, for instance, Preuss found that the concept of heaven in its entirety enjoyed precedence over that of the individual stars. And in a different connection, the relationship between heaven or the celestial god and the cosmic and social order will, at a later stage, become more intelligible. At present, however, we are investigating not the laws and ordered processes dominating human life from above, but those dramatic events in the upper world which seem to be parallel or even akin to those of the lower world of Earth. This implies that primitive man regards celestial events not as the domain of law. He is by no means certain about the daily return of the heavenly light, and the fear that the sun may some day fail in its course is to him in no way a mere phantom of the brain. The sun indeed to our minds, the pivot of the regularity of the whole solar system, appears to him neither constant nor even single. The Togo Negroes, for example, formerly believed that each village had its own special sun, and it was only at a later date that they altered this opinion. The events of the higher world, therefore, form no completed process, but rather a revelation of power. Life in the heavens deploys itself spontaneously just as it does on earth. The Kora Indians, for instance, speak of stars as opening buds, while in an ancient Babylonian hymn to Sin, the moon god, the orb is styled the fruit that forms itself. The old Egyptian heaven or sun god, again, was always called he who originates from himself, and thus in the world above potent life manifests itself. But since this life is not yet subjected to or any orderly regularity, the naturalness of nature, to our own minds so axiomatic, is absent. The powerful is apprehended, therefore, not in its invariability, but in its potency, which can most forcibly reveal itself, but which may also withdraw itself or even fail altogether. The way in which primitive peoples interpreted eclipses of the sun and moon is universally familiar, and the Egyptians had a tradition relating how the sun in its wrath once deserted men and departed to a foreign country. 
The primitive or semi-primitive mind, then, regards the daily return of light by no means as a matter of course, but as the subject of perpetual fear and hope. What Chesterton has said of sunrise in a fine passage, that it is no repetition but a theatrical da capo, and that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon, is genuinely primitive in feeling, just as his association of this type of idea with that of the fairy tale is quite correct. The feelings of hope and of anxiety connected with the sunrise produced the great light myth, as this acquired its form in the most varied cultural circles. Light, the sun, or even the moon, is a conquering hero, a warrior who annihilates the monster of darkness. The sun rejoiceth as a strong man to run race, while the magnificent Babylonian hymn addresses this acclamation to the moon. O Lord, who is like unto thee? Who is equal to thee? Great hero, who is like unto thee? Who is equal to thee? Lord Nanar, who is like unto thee? Who is equal to thee? When thou liftest up thine eyes, who can flee? When thou drawest near, who can escape? The dawn of light is a triumph over enemies. The dragon, the snake, or some other atrocity of death and darkness is defeated. And this light myth dominates extensive tracts of the religious imagination in general. God as victor or as king. This entire realm of ideas is based on the dawn, while with it thoughts of creation are interwoven. And the Christian Christmas symbolism of Kreshet Lux is also a reinterpretation of this natural process. Victory and light, lordship and the sun, they must all be connected together, and the relations between the Roman emperor's dignity and conquering light have been convincingly presented by Cumont, while in naming Cleopatra's twins Helios and Selene, Antony designated them as Cosignocratores, rulers of the universe.